0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series for the month of May, Disorder in the Court. In these episodes, I'll detail cases where chaos occurred inside what should be a safe and secure place, our courtrooms. In this first episode, I'll tell you the story of one of the worst criminal rampages to occur in recent history. On March 11, 2005, Brian Nichols, who was in custody on a rape charge, escaped while being transported to the court for a hearing. He would go on a murder spree, causing downtown Atlanta to go on lockdown while he terrorized its citizens. After 26 hours, the story would come to a surprising end, thanks to an unlikely hero. But while this case might sound familiar to you, I've uncovered some less reported details about who exactly Brian Nichols was and the real possible motives for his actions 14 years ago. This is the first chapter of Disorder in the Court, The Case of the Atlanta Courthouse Killer. On Friday morning, March 11, 2005, criminal defense attorney Renee Rockwell entered the Fulton County Courthouse in downtown Atlanta. She was headed for courtroom 8H on the eighth floor, Judge Roland Barnes' courtroom. As she walked down the hall towards the courtroom, she saw several deputies running in her direction. They appeared to be in a great hurry, and she teased, What's wrong? Did someone escape? To her surprise, they didn't joke back with her, but instead hurried her along with them into an elevator. Inside the elevator, there were several more armed deputies, some with their guns drawn. Another female deputy inside the elevator was crying. What happened, Renee asked, alarmed now. The deputy responded, the defendant took a gun away from the deputy and shot the judge. What judge, Rockwell gasped. Judge Barnes, she was told. The defendant, she was informed, had escaped the building, and a manhunt was underway. Immediately, Renee guessed the identity of the defendant, who was now on the run. 33-year-old Brian Nichols had been in Judge Barnes' courtroom that week, charged with rape. He had been accused of holding an ex-girlfriend hostage, raping her, and threatening to kill her. His first trial had ended in a hung jury. The retrial had begun, with Judge Barnes also presiding over the second trial. Closing arguments were scheduled to be heard that day. While court employees were still trying to process the news of Judge Barnes' shooting, they would be shocked to hear the magnitude of the morning's tragic events. Roland Barnes had been shot in the back of the head and had died instantly. The court reporter on duty in courtroom 8H, Julie Brandow, had also been shot and killed. A sheriff's deputy who had pursued Nichols, Sergeant Hoyt Teasley, had also been fatally wounded, shot in the abdomen. Cynthia Hall, the deputy assigned to escort Nichols to court, had been attacked and her weapon taken before being locked in a cell. She was in critical condition. There were many questions that needed to be answered, such as how had Nichols, handcuffed and escorted by an armed deputy, managed to get the upper hand and disarm her? And how had he gotten access to a judge with armed deputies in and around the courtroom? Also, how had he managed to escape the county courthouse Traversing eight floors before exiting the building. These questions had to be put on hold for now. The first priority was to find the armed fugitive and bring him back into custody before anyone else was hurt or killed. To this end, the city of Atlanta was brought almost to a standstill while the manhunt continued. The courthouse was locked down, with none of the occupants allowed to leave for hours until it could be searched room by room. Hundreds of officers swarmed the area to aid in the search. Roadblocks were set up, and helicopters circled the downtown area in ever-widening circles. More than 100 state troopers and officers from other agencies, including the FBI, arrived to assist in the search. The television show America's Most Wanted was aired that morning, interrupting regularly scheduled programming to warn citizens about the armed fugitive. Nichols' mugshot flashed across TV screens and phone numbers were provided for citizens, to call with any sightings or information. A $65,000 reward was announced for information leading to Nichols' arrest. Over the next 24 hours, Nichols would leave a path of violence behind him. As the details unfolded, a picture emerged of a man who could be alternately charming and extremely violent. Brian G. Nichols was born on December 10, 1971, in Baltimore, Maryland. His parents, Jean and Claritha, raised Brian and his older brother, Mark, in the close-knit Cherry Hill neighborhood. Many of the Nichols' family members lived close by, and the boys grew up surrounded by more than 50 aunts, uncles, and cousins. Jean and Claritha were both smart, hardworking, and ambitious, and wanted to provide the best for their family. Claritha worked for the Internal Revenue Service, and while her hours were long, she was a devoted mother and homemaker. She loved to make big breakfasts for her boys. Other family members and neighborhood kids said they especially loved her pancakes. Jean was an entrepreneur who owned several food service businesses over the years. The Nichols boys enjoyed more material possessions and opportunities than some of their friends. Neighbors recalled the boys being gifted the latest BMX trick bikes by their parents. The family owned a beautiful baby grand piano, and Brian's mother taught him to play by ear. He also began taking martial arts lessons at the age of 11, and enjoyed showing off his nunchuck skills to his friends. The family moved to a more prosperous neighborhood in Northeast Baltimore when Brian was still in grade school. They purchased a two-story home in a nice family neighborhood. Brian was somewhat shy, and until he was in high school, always remained in the shadows, either that of his brother Mark, who was four years older, or his friends. Brian was among the youngest in the neighborhood and was his mother's baby, according to one friend. For high school, the Nichols enrolled their sons in the private Catholic Cardinal Gibbons School. At age 16, Brian began lifting weights, and after a growth spurt, would reach the height of six foot one inches tall. He would eventually weigh over 200 pounds. Brian met Zachary Dingle, who had become his best friend at Cardinal Gibbons. They played on the football team together. Of the two... Dingle was clearly the leader, with Nichols following behind him. After his junior year of high school, Dingle decided to transfer to Northern High School to play football there. Nichols then transferred to Northern as well, and they talked about attending college together and then playing in the NFL. Nichols then followed his friend in applying to Town University in Pennsylvania. Dingle received a scholarship, but Nichols did not. He enrolled and joined his friend on the football team anyway. But soon after school began, Dingle decided he didn't like Cutstown U and transferred to a school in Virginia that had also wanted to recruit him to play for their team. Nichols was left behind at Cutstown, and before long, he began to get in trouble. At first, there were minor infractions, like paying a fine for having a loud party and using a fake ID to purchase liquor. But then in the spring of 1990, he was arrested for making terroristic threats, simple assault, disorderly conduct, and harassment. This incident took place in the campus's dining hall, but there are no other details. Nichols pled guilty to the two lesser charges, and the others were dropped. The following year, he was arrested twice, spending two nights in jail for criminal trespass, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct. He also got into an altercation with the man outside of a pizza parlor and used his martial arts training to attack the man kicking him and knocking him to the ground. After Nichols left for college, his family moved away from Baltimore, settling in a new home in South Carolina. They heard about his run-ins with the law and were concerned, but not overly so, perhaps chalking up these incidents to youthful indiscretion. Maybe the courts felt the same way because all charges against him were dropped. It seems that when left on his own, Nichols's life spiraled out of control. He was unfocused in college, and his behavior became more erratic and even violent. Teammates at Cutstown said that Nichols's size and the martial arts training he often bragged about gave him the reputation of someone who shouldn't be challenged. Nichols left Cutstown and enrolled at Newberry College in South Carolina to be near his parents. He joined the football team, but was kicked off after he was arrested for breaking into a dorm room and charged with first-degree burglary. Nichols' mother was in demand in her career and was transferred to Florida to take another position. After being kicked off the team, Nichols followed his parents to Florida. In 1996, his parents moved again, this time to Atlanta, and Nichols settled there as well, taking a position as a Unix systems engineer for Hewlett-Packard. He worked for HP for eight years before being hired as a computer engineer for United Parcel Service in Atlanta. His brother would later report that Nichols was successful in his chosen field, making a six-figure salary. But Nichols still had legal troubles during his time in Georgia. In 1992, his college girlfriend became pregnant, giving birth to a daughter. Nichols didn't stay involved in his child's life and failed to pay child support. In 2000, he was sued by the child's mother for $13,000 in back child support payments. He was also charged with felony drug possession in 1996 and was put on probation for three years. In Georgia, Nichols had a long-term girlfriend, but she ended the relationship after seven years when she found out he had been unfaithful and had impregnated another woman. He begged her to reconcile with him, and when she refused, he threatened suicide. About a month after their breakup, she began dating another man. When she returned from a date one evening, Nichols was waiting outside of her apartment. They argued, and Nichols left. The following morning, August 19, 2004, she awoke at 5 a.m. to find Nichols standing in her bedroom, pointing a gun at her. He first made her disarm her alarm system. He then duct-taped her hands and feet and told her that if she did what he said, he wouldn't harm her, but if she did not, it would be a murder-suicide. He threatened to douse her with lighter fluid and set her on fire, showing her the lighter fluid that he'd brought with him. For the next seven hours, Nichols held the terrified woman captive. He raped her at gunpoint and videotaped her while he forced her to perform oral sex. Afterward, he set her free and left the apartment, warning her not to go to the police and threatening her and her family. But she did report the rape. Nichols was arrested and charged with rape, kidnapping, and assault. A few months earlier, Nichols' parents had moved out of the country. His mother had taken a tax consulting job in Africa. Nichols' parents heard about their son's arrest while living in Tanzania. They received email updates from friends and Nichols' attorney while he was in jail awaiting trial. Nichols' case was brought to trial and ended in a hung jury. The state immediately decided to retry him. Meanwhile, he remained in jail for eight months. He was offered a plea deal for 15 years behind bars, rather than the 25-plus years he was facing. However, Nichols was cocky, saying that he could win over the jury like he had the first time and walk free. A jury is going to love me, Nichols told his defense attorney, Barry Hazen. I'm a handsome man. All we need is women on the jury. Upon learning he'd be retried, Nichols had angrily announced to the courthouse, I'm not going to go lying down. He was in contact with friends while in jail and they warned the district attorney's office that he might try to escape. One friend reported that Nichols asked him to leave a credit card in the pocket of a suit jacket he was bringing him to wear to court. There were even warnings from Nichols' own mother. Clarita Nichols emailed the Fulton County Sheriff's Office to tell them she thought her son might try and take an officer's weapon. On March 9th, the second trial was underway when deputies escorting Nichols from the courthouse noticed something in his shoes. When they searched him, they discovered two shanks or crudely made jailhouse weapons. The ones in Nichols' possession appeared to be metal door hinges sharpened into points. The following day, Judge Roland Barnes, who had presided over both trials, asked for security to be increased. On Friday, the prosecution was scheduled to call its last witness. Facing a possible life sentence and already deemed a threat, Nichols was believed by the judge to be a security risk in the courtroom. But the Fulton County Courthouse was short-staffed. The county was experiencing a budget problem, and there weren't enough funds to have more than one deputy assigned to most courtrooms. If a security risk was suspected, deputies would be moved around as needed to cover other areas of the courthouse. But no one could predict how quickly or tragically events would unfold the following day, Friday, March 11th. On Friday morning, Sheriff's Deputy Cynthia Hall was assigned to escort Brian Nichols from the courthouse's detention area in the basement to Judge Barnes's courtroom on the eighth floor. The petite 5-foot-1-inch deputy was escorting Nichols alone. Another deputy had urged Hall three times that day to get someone else to accompany her, but Hall had declined. She didn't feel threatened by the 6-foot-1-inch, 210-pound jail inmate, She had been routinely escorting Nichols back and forth from the holding cell to the courthouse during both of his trials. During these trips, they often engaged in friendly chit chat about how the trial was going and about their children. Nichols had gained so much trust from the deputy that she didn't require him to wear leg shackles as was customary. As they entered the holding area, Hall removed Nichols' handcuffs so he could change out of his prison garb and into the suit he wore for court. She released one cuff and turned him around to unhook the other half when he attacked her, pushing her into an open cell. A video surveillance camera captured the attack on video. Nichols hit the deputy in the face so hard that she was lifted off the ground. He beat her into unconsciousness, and then left the cell with the deputy's gun belt, radio, and keys. He locked her into the cell, and then entered another, and changed into his street clothes. He used the keys to open a lockbox, and armed himself with a deputy's forty caliber semi automatic pistol. Nichols then crossed over to the courthouse via a sky bridge. He went directly to Judge Barnes' private chambers. The judge was not there, but Nichols encountered case managers Susan Christie and Gina Thomas, and attorney David Allman. Brandishing the weapon, he ordered them to sit on the floor and demanded to know where the judge was. The Court Bailiff Sergeant Grantly White, then entered the chambers and attempted to stop Nichols, but was threatened. Pointing the gun at White, Nichols told him to back off. I've got nothing to lose, he warned. Nichols then disarmed the bailiff. He then made the bailiff handcuff the other three court officers. While doing so, White was able to push an emergency button in the chambers to summon court security. A dispatcher was heard on the line, and Nichols quickly responded by calling back with an all-clear message. This alerted other deputies because the response came from the bailiff's radio number, but it was not his voice. Nichols handcuffed the bailiff and locked him in a bathroom before exiting. He then passed through the chamber door and into courtroom 8H, where Judge Barnes was presiding over a civil trial. Before anyone had time to react, Nichols raised the weapon and shot the judge at close range in the back of the head. According to witnesses, as people in the courtroom began to scream and run for the door, the gunmen scanned the courtroom as if looking for someone, most likely the assistant district attorneys, who were prosecuting the case. Not finding them in the courtroom, Nichols then lowered the gun and shot court reporter Julie Brandau in the head. Quickly but calmly, Nichols then looked into a side room where witnesses waited before trials began. He may have been looking for his former girlfriend, who was testifying at his rape trial? Fortunately for her, she had not yet arrived and the room was empty. Nichols left the courtroom and ran down a stairwell. Sergeant Hoyt Teasley had just arrived for his shift at the courthouse when he heard the alarm. Seeing the man running towards the stairwell, Teasley ran after Nichols in pursuit. Sergeant Teasley had not even had time to don his bulletproof vest or grab his radio, so he did not receive the warning that the escapee was armed. Nichols ran down seven flights of stairs and out of an emergency exit, emerging onto Martin Luther King Drive. As he passed through the exit, an alarm began to sound and the people on the street turned to look in his direction. Nichols fired several shots into the air and people screamed and dove for cover. Teasley was followed close behind when Nichols turned and fired two shots at him, hitting him once in the abdomen. Judge Barnes and Julie Brandow were killed instantly and Teasley died before reaching the hospital. It was just 9 a.m., and the fugitive was now loose in downtown Atlanta. Every available officer was called in for the manhunt, and even those who were off-duty reported in to try and track down the prisoner who had already murdered three people. Still, Nichols was able to evade capture. He first ran across the street from the courthouse to an underground parking garage, Deputy Solicitor General Dwayne Cooper was parking his 2002 Mazda Tribute when he was approached by Nichols. Give it up, mother Nichols told Cooper, pointing the gun at his face. Cooper complied, and Nichols jumped in and drove away from the garage, tires squealing. A juvenile court officer, Larry McCrary, witnessed the carjacking and followed the fugitive in his own car. He saw Nichols enter another garage on Peachtree Street. McCrary parked his vehicle to block the entrance to the garage and flagged down three Atlanta police officers. As the officers entered the garage, Nichols walked out of another entrance and approached a tow truck. Pointing the gun at the driver, Nichols ordered him out. He then jumped into the vehicle and traveled north, driving the wrong direction down a one-way street. He once again entered another parking garage, this one on Cone Street. There, Nichols carjacked a 2004 Mercury Sable from Elmetta Kilgo, an employee of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He demanded she get into the passenger seat, apparently now deciding to take a hostage. He drove away with Kilgo for a short distance and then stopped and told her to get into the trunk. As they exited the vehicle, she was able to make a run for it and escaped. Nichols now drove away alone and into another parking lot on Spring Street. There he abandoned the car and walked up to Sung Chung, a jewelry store employee who had just parked his vehicle. Nichols then put the gun to Chung's head and ordered him into the passenger seat of the 1997 Isuzu Trooper. He then made Chung get down onto the floorboard. As Nichols pulled out of the parking lot, he told Chung to give him his jacket. He was now attempting to change his appearance, and as he began to put on the jacket, Chung saw an opportunity to escape he unlocked his door and jumped out. Nichols drove out of the parking lot in the Isuzu to the Centennial Tower parking deck. There, Don O'Brien, a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, was parking his SUV in a disabled parking space. Nichols approached, now not wearing a shirt, and asked O'Brien for directions. He then pulled his weapon on the man and threatened to kill him if he didn't give up his car keys. He ordered O'Brien into the trunk, but the man refused. Nichols hit him with the gun and drove off in the SUV. O'Brien was badly cut above his right eye and suffered a broken wrist. The last sighting of Nichols was on security camera images taken inside the parking lot stairwell. Nichols is seen putting on a jacket taken from O'Brien's vehicle as he walks down the stairs. He then disappears. The car was found abandoned on the first floor of the garage. A reward for the fugitive was announced at a police press conference that morning. That evening, a segment aired on the television program America's Most Wanted, reporting about the courthouse shootings and broadcasting Nichols' photo and description. Still somehow, Nichols had managed to escape the dragnet. It was later determined that Nichols had walked away from the Centennial parking garage to the Five Points Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, or MARTA, station, located about a block away. A witness said she was alone on a train that morning with a man fitting Nichols' description. He was wearing a too-small jacket with no shirt underneath and sweating profusely. The station surveillance camera tapes were reviewed, and Nichols was seen walking through the station just before 10 a.m. Over 12 hours later, at 10.18 p.m., Nichols attempted to kidnap Imon Aiden as she walked towards her apartment located at 3200 Lennox Road. He took her to her apartment at gunpoint, saying he needed to hide out. But when he entered, he was surprised to discover that a man was inside. Shelton Warren, Aiden's boyfriend, opened the door. Nichols pushed the woman inside the apartment as the two men began to struggle in the hallway. Aiden, hysterical, could be heard placing a call to 911. Upon hearing this, Nichols hit Warren with a gun and ran off. Once again, Nichols vanished. Candy Wilhelm and her husband David had spent the day working on the new home they were renovating in Buckhead, a neighborhood located about seven miles or 11 kilometers north of downtown Atlanta. Candy left David laying tiles in the bathroom while she drove to their rental home to prepare a late dinner. David Wilhelm was an agent for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. He and Candy had just moved to Atlanta a few months earlier, when he'd been promoted to special agent. They'd just found their dream home and set about remodeling it before moving in. The home was located not far from the Lennox Marta station. David Wilhelm was found dead in his home early Saturday. He'd been shot once in the abdomen he was lying in a back bedroom with the pockets of his pants turned inside out and loose change scattered near him on the floor. His wallet, badge, gun, and blue Chevy pickup truck were gone. After 24 hours, Nichols had only made it to Northeast Atlanta and he was growing increasingly desperate. He knew that beyond the lookouts were posted for him throughout the greater metro area and he needed a place to hide out. He was sure by now that the police would be searching for Wilhelm's pickup truck. Nichols drove 20 minutes further northeast on I-85, crossing into the city of Duluth. At 2 a.m., he pulled into the parking lot of Bridgewater Apartments. 26-year-old Ashley Smith was returning to her apartment where she lived alone after a quick trip to a convenience store to purchase cigarettes. Nichols approached her from behind, pointed the gun at her and said, if you do what I say, I won't kill you. He pushed her into her apartment and told her he was a wanted man. After forcing her into the bathroom, he tied her up with electrical cords and duct tape. He told her he wanted to take a shower and before undressing, he placed a towel over the young woman's head so she, quote, wouldn't have to see him naked, unquote. Smith's mind raced as she tried to think of how she might survive this terrifying situation she decided to try an appeal to his humanity. Over the next few hours, she poured out her life story, explaining that she was the mother of a five-year-old daughter who was currently living with her aunt. She was scheduled to visit her daughter the next day and begged Nichols not to kill her. She explained that she was a widow. Her husband had died after being stabbed during a brawl four years earlier. Her life had spiraled afterwards as she sank into depression and drug addiction. She had recently put her life back together, attending school and looking for a job and trying to stay sober. Her child needed her mother, she said, and if he killed her, he would leave her little girl an orphan. For some reason, Nichols listened to her. He told her he wouldn't hurt her and that he just needed to stay in her apartment for a while. Over the next few hours, she continued to talk to him, telling him that she was a born-again Christian, and she spoke about experiencing God's forgiveness. Nichols responded, asking her more questions about her life. He also considered himself a Christian, having regularly attended church throughout his life. Smith's words about faith and forgiveness seemed to comfort him. He turned on the television, and they watched news reports about the courthouse shootings and the ongoing manhunt. Smith told him he should think about doing the right thing and turn himself in, or he might end up hurt or killed. He told her he was, quote, already dead, You're not dead, she responded. You're standing right in front of me. If you want to die, you can. It's your choice. After more time had passed, Smith grew anxious and asked Nichols if she could read to take her mind off things. He said that she could. She was reading a book called The Purpose Driven Life by Pastor Rick Warren, a bestseller at that time. Perhaps anxious or bored, Nichols asked her to read out loud. She began to read a section that explained that everyone was created for a purpose. What is your purpose? She read to Nichols. What talents were you given? What gifts were you given to use? She continued to speak to Nichols about surrendering. She told him that he would have to pay the consequence for his crimes, but that his life wasn't over and God would forgive him. At one point, the news reported about the people he'd killed, and Smith said that he looked up and asked God to forgive him. By this time, Smith was hopeful that he might do the right thing, and at the very least, let her go unharmed. She later told authorities that she'd had several chances to escape that morning, but thought better of it. She'd earned his trust somewhat and didn't want to jeopardize this. She was afraid he'd become desperate again and kill her and others if he felt trapped. Nichols told her that he needed to get rid of the truck he'd driven to Duluth. He asked her to follow him in her car while he drove the vehicle away from the apartment complex. Smith asked him if she could take her cell phone with her, and he agreed. She could have driven away or made a call for help, but she did neither. Nichols abandoned the car about two miles away. Smith then drove them both back to her apartment. After they returned, Smith made pancakes for breakfast and they ate together. She had now been Nichols hostage for about seven hours. She reminded him that she needed to leave to see her daughter soon. A short time later, he agreed to let her leave while he stayed in the apartment. Smith left the apartment and placed a call to 911 at 9.50 a.m. When police and a SWAT team arrived at the apartment building soon afterward, Nichols emerged, waving a white flag of surrender. He was taken into custody unharmed. (music) Ryan Nichols was first taken to an FBI field office and held on the federal charge of possession of a firearm by a person under indictment. He was then transferred to an Atlanta police station where he was questioned about the courthouse shootings and the murder of David Wilhelm. When he was taken into custody, he was found in the possession of several stolen weapons and Agent Wilhelm's wallet. After two hours in police custody, Nichols agreed to confess to his crimes. His confession was recorded on video. He did not request an attorney. Nichols confessed to all four murders, but defended his actions by saying that he felt like a, quote, soldier on a mission, unquote. He claimed he'd been taking revenge on a judicial system that was unfair to African-Americans and told of feeling enslaved while sitting in jail for months during his two trials. He insisted he was innocent of the rape charge and believed he would be falsely convicted. After assaulting the deputy and taking her weapon, rather than just escaping the building, he purposely crossed into the courthouse to hunt down the judge. He said that he had nothing against Judge Barnes personally, and even said that he was nice, but explained that the judge was part of a larger unjust system. He'd killed the court reporter, Julie Brandow, when she'd stood to check on the judge, although he gave no real reason why he did so. He shot Sergeant Teasley to escape, and Agent Wilhelm while attempting to steal his car. He also admitted to holding Ashley Smith hostage in her apartment before surrendering. He said he was impressed the police didn't shoot him when he walked out of the apartment to give himself up. Ashley Smith was hailed as a hero for ending Brian Nichols' killing spree. She was awarded over $70,000 for his capture. In interviews on news programs and talk shows, she spoke of her faith in God and said she believed the hope she shared with her kidnapper helped him to decide to turn himself in. Later, she wrote a book titled Unlikely Angel about her life before the courthouse shootings, her kidnapping ordeal, and the aftermath. In it, she admitted that while she was held captive, Brian Nichols asked her if she had any marijuana. She told him she didn't, but she did have some ice or crystal meth. She admitted that she had struggled with a methamphetamine addiction and had used the drug 36 hours before she was taken hostage. Nichols wanted her to do the drugs with him, but she refused, saying that if she died that day, she didn't want to do so under the influence of drugs. She wanted to appear before God sober. Despite the fact that Nichols confessed to his crimes, he decided to plead not guilty. He was charged with 54 counts, including murder, felony murder, kidnapping, armed robbery, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, theft, carjacking, and escape from authorities. His attorneys would defend him using a not-guilty-by-reason-of-insanity defense. They would claim that he was delusional at the time of his escape, believing that he was, quote, in a war in which he was a slave rebelling against the United States and plantation politics, unquote. They would also claim that Nichols believed himself to be a real superhero, a delusion that manifested itself as a result of playing video games and smoking marijuana. But the prosecution characterized Nichols as a bad seed, who was not mentally ill, but had decided he was not going to stand trial on the rape charge and orchestrated a well-planned escape from custody. They would seek the death penalty. The trial became drawn out and costly for several reasons. First, the number of victims and charges against Nichols made his case more complicated to try. Second, the defense argued that Nichols could not receive an unbiased trial if he was to be tried at the same courthouse where he'd committed his crimes. The judges there were colleagues and friends of Judge Barnes and some of the other victims, so the defense requested a change of venue. Also, an insanity defense required costly mental health evaluations and expert witnesses. Fulton County received a bill for $125,000 for a psychiatric evaluation for Nichols, and that was just the beginning of the cost that would be incurred for the trial. In fact, the trial was delayed several times due to lack of funding available for Nichols' defense team. In total, Nichols' trial was expected to cost over $5 million. Another reason for Fulton County's lack of funds was the amount of money that had to be paid to victims' families to settle lawsuits. Judge Barnes's widow, Claudia, won a $5.2 million lawsuit, and $5 million was also awarded to Julie Randall's daughter, Christina Schulte. The trial finally began in the fall of 2008, almost three and a half years after Nichols' crime spree. It was held in the Atlanta Municipal Court before a jury that took nine weeks to select from a pool of almost 250. The prosecution began their opening statements by playing the audio tape from the day of the shootings. A recording was being made of routine courtroom proceedings when the horrifying sounds of the gunshot that killed Judge Barnes could be heard, followed a few seconds later by the second gunshot aimed at Julie Brandau. The audio then recorded cries and screams by people in the courtroom. Lead prosecutor Kelly Hill characterized the defendant as a conniving, vicious, cold-blooded, remorseless, evil, and extremely dangerous killer. The defense made an argument for not guilty by reason of insanity, saying that Nichols' behavior was the product of an emotionally distant relationship from his parents, who were workaholics and not home enough. They also claimed that his father drank alcohol and smoked marijuana, and that Nichols also smoked marijuana beginning at a young age. They further claimed that he'd been sexually abused by a cousin and his older brother, and that he'd been bullied as a child. The defense presented a paper written by Nichols in college, as proof of his delusional disorder. In the essay, Nichols lays out his theory that white men are guilty of an organized and deliberate attempt to eradicate the black race by imprisoning black men, thus keeping them from procreating. His defense told the jury that eventually, Nichols became so delusional that he viewed Judge Roland Barnes as a slave master. Nichols believed that he was at war with the government, they said, and didn't know right from wrong when he murdered his victims. To counter the defense's claims, the prosecution brought in the former Fulton County prosecutor who had tried Nichols twice on the 2004 rape charge. She said she'd never observed any signs of mental illness during the multiple times she'd met with Nichols, nor had his attorney ever mentioned it. Nichols claimed that he'd only shot David Wilhelm after the agent pulled his own weapon, but the prosecution put a forensic expert on the stand who testified that, in his opinion, When Wilhelm was shot in the abdomen, he was either kneeling or standing with his upper torso leaning towards the shooter. Wilhelm had been shot at a downward angle through the stomach. The bullet had pierced his spine, paralyzing him. He'd also been struck in the thumb by a bullet, an injury that would have been impossible if he'd been gripping a gun. The defense also called Nichols' former girlfriend, whose rape he'd been standing trial for at the time of his escape. The defense wanted to portray Nichols as a man who was desperate and broken after being rejected and who was suicidal and not in his right mind. But his victim's description of her attack only served to seal the image of Nichols as an extremely violent and terrifying criminal. His former defense attorney was called to describe how Nichols had turned down the plea deal, believing that his victim wouldn't testify against him. They thought this illustrated how delusional their client was. Again, the strategy backfired, only serving to portray Nichols as arrogant and without remorse. One person who couldn't be called to testify was Cynthia Hall, the deputy who'd been beaten by Nichols while escorting him to the courthouse. The attack upon her had left her with a traumatic brain injury and blind in one eye. She still experienced difficulty with speech and walking and did not remember anything from March 11, 2005. The brain damage she'd suffered caused her to lose all memory from the day of the attack. The jury deliberated for 12 hours over two days before finding Brian Nichols guilty on all 54 counts. He was sentenced to multiple life sentences with no possibility for parole. The jury was split nine to three on imposing the death penalty. The judge instead handed down the maximum sentence on each charge to run consecutively. He told Nichols, if there was any more I could give you, I would. After Brian Nichols' murder spree, we're left to ponder what caused him to act out so violently. Was he an abused and neglected child who was angry at the world? According to relatives, friends, and neighbors, he came from a loving and supportive family. His mother, Claritha, still visits him weekly, and I've found no reports to corroborate his claims of sexual abuse. Although that doesn't mean it didn't happen. As for being bullied, some of his childhood friends would say it was Brian who used his size to intimidate others. Was he, in fact, mentally ill and suffering from delusions? Some who knew him as a child and a young man say that this must be the case. They cannot reconcile the quiet, polite Brian they knew with the quadruple murderer they see on the news but the jury also heard a tape-recorded conversation between Nichols and his father from the Fulton County Jail, where he says, I think they think a black man must be crazy to stand up for himself. I could have saved them some time and money and told them there was nothing wrong with me. Or did he suffer from a pathological fear of and violent reaction to rejection? He seemed to latch on to friends, girlfriends, and his parents obsessively, not being confident enough to branch out on his own. Did he feel rejected when left behind by his best friend in college? Soon after his parents moved out of the country, his girlfriend also broke up with him. It was then that he attacked her so violently. Was this because he felt abandoned by everyone at the same time? Or was he simply a bad seed, as some have characterized him? Rather than appearing to be out of control or delusional, his actions seem well planned and thought out. He was methodical in how he charmed other people into trusting him, people like Deputy Cynthia Hall, who didn't realize how dangerous he was until it was too late. He may have simply been a narcissist, who became violent when he didn't get his way. If so, then how was Ashley Smith able to not only escape with her life, but perhaps even convince him to surrender peacefully? Did he connect with her because of her struggles and life experiences? Did her kindness reach something human and decent in him? When she made him pancakes, did this remind him of how his mother cared for him? Did her message of hope and forgiveness help him to decide to take another path? Or, after having some time to reflect on what he'd done and what he was up against, did he simply realize he probably wouldn't escape with his life if he didn't surrender? He saw the amount of manpower being deployed to bring him to justice, and also that he'd already been featured nationwide on America's Most Wanted he must have known that the cards were stacked against him being taken alive. He acted as if he was repentant for his crimes, confessing to police, although there was no doubt that he was the courthouse shooter. The first time he spoke to his mother after the killings, he told her that he was remorseful for what he'd done. Yet he still attempted to deflect responsibility by launching an insanity defense and claiming that one of his victims had pointed a gun at him and he'd merely shot him in self-defense. It was also discovered that while awaiting trial for the murders, Nichols planned another escape attempt. Allegedly, he was attempting to enlist a girlfriend, two deputies, a paralegal, and his own brother for help in the plot. The escape didn't get past the planning stages before it was foiled. Nichols was then moved to DeKalb County Jail. He is now serving his life sentences housed in the high max unit of the Georgia Diagnostic Classification Prison in Jackson. Due to the high profile of his crimes, and because he is deemed an escape risk, he spends 23 hours a day locked away alone in his cell. He recently gave an interview to an Atlanta news reporter in which he expressed remorse for his crimes and offered apologies to his victims' families. He still claims that he was delusional at the time of the murders, although today he appears to be completely rational and lucid with full recall of his crime spree. In 2015, Ashley Smith's story of being taken hostage by Brian Nichols and helping bring him to justice was turned into a feature film. Titled Captive, the film starred Kate Mara as Smith and David Oyelowo as Nichols. Ashley Smith is now married, with two biological children and one stepchild. She works as an imaging technician in a hospital emergency department. She has stayed clean and sober since that fateful day in 2005. She speaks at churches and organizations about faith and living a purposeful life. The Fulton County Courthouse underwent security changes after the shootings. Locks were improved in the detention area, duress signals were implemented, additional cameras were installed, and gun lockers were revamped. More x-ray machines were purchased, and older ones were replaced. There are more patrols both inside and outside of the courthouse. Police dogs also patrol the perimeter and parking lots. Procedures have been changed in the way prisoners are transported. More deputies monitor surveillance camera activity, and two or more deputies are required to be present in each courtroom while proceedings are underway. Many judges, attorneys, security personnel, and others who work at the Fulton County Courthouse say that their lives change forever on March 11, 2005. They feel more responsible for watching out for one another and more wary of potential threats, even when surrounded by armed deputies. They also continue to do their best to honor the good people they lost on 311. Judge Roland Barnes, Julie Brandow, Sergeant Hoyt Teasley, and Agent David Wilhelm, never forgetting the good work they did for the city of Atlanta and Fulton County, and how they gave the ultimate sacrifice in the pursuit of justice. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you'll join me next week for another chapter of the series, Disorder in the Court. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend and show them how to subscribe. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.